27 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined as always by my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Ben. How you doing? I'm good. This was secretly actually a busy week in the tennis world, the middle of February. Yeah, it was super busy, but I thought it was a really, really good week uh, of tennis. I mean, I think that there were just a lot of really interesting storylines, whether they just be, you know, between players, obviously with Serena getting number one again, but then Pika beating her. There's also, you know, Nadal and everything that was going on down in Brazil. There were tournament issues, again, with the Brazil Open, um, also with the SAP leaving San Jose. Um, so yeah, there was just kind of, there just seemed like there was a lot going on, um, both on court and off court. And I don't know, I feel kind of energized after this week. I it don't know a, what that is. It was a good week. And so on this show, we're going to talk about the week for the WTA, including Victoria Azarenka and Serena Williams changing their rivalry up a bit in Doha. We also discuss Rafael Nadal getting mixed reviews and giving mixed reviews in Brazil as well as the antics from the stands of Peter Wozniacki. And then we take your questions and take a number and rant about stuff. Let's get started. So let's start in the Middle East, where I think in a lot of ways, this week might have worked out just about as well as it could have for the quote-unquote good of the WTA, whatever that means. Serena gets number one, as everyone had waited for, but then she loses to Azarenka, which theoretically could mean that rivalry is more of a, of a thing now. Courtney, what do you make of the week in Doha from the end? Obviously, a lot happened in the middle of the week. We'll get to that later. But let's just talk about the big results, the final four, Serena and Azarenka. Yeah, I think I, I think you nailed uh, you hit the nail on the head just in terms of this being the best result for the WTA. You know, obviously Serena's back at number one. That kind of shuts up all of these kind of, in my opinion, especially in recent months, really ridiculous talk or side-eyeing or eye-rolling about Azarenka being number one and not being a legitimate number one and actually Serena's number one. I think that what's important about this result out of Doha is that with Azarenka winning the final the way that she did, and she played fantastic. I mean, I know Serena wasn't like at her best, but bottom line is I think that Azarenka really showed that the gap is a lot closer than people think that it is between the, the both of them. I think she showed and proved what I've kind of always thought, which is that Serena does have to play at or near her, her best to beat Vika. It's a tough matchup for her, for Serena by Serena standards, even if she is 11-2. and two. Right, but no other player currently on tour right now offers that sort of resistance to Serena in terms of a player that you think, okay, Serena has to play really well to win. If she plays really well, she'll win. But, you know, most of the other players, you kind of feel like, well, she can kind of bring her C or B game and still probably eke out the win. So I think that we do have to tip our caps Savika in that way. So I think it's the best kind of scenario, best case scenario. I think that it's important for Azarenka to stay within striking distance for the number one ranking. I think that that will continue to motivate Serena to hold on to this ranking if she doesn't, if there isn't a situation where she can just kind of coast. Yeah. Then, like Serena will continue to kind of work and be motivated to keep it. So, and Vika could get it next week. Yeah, absolutely. And which is, I think, a big reason why Serena's playing next week. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I 
I think that I'll admit I I kind of bought for a while this idea that Serena didn't really care about number one and that, you know, it was kind of more of a media or tour driven thing. But obviously we saw that that wasn't the case with her crying after she beat Kvitova and admitting that it really did mean a lot to her just because it was part of her journey back. Yeah, I mean, we can talk about that. I mean, I, I've heard Serena say that as well, that, you know, she's playing for titles and whatever. But at the same time, I don't think that I ever, you know, completely bought that just because when you look at these moments when all the WTA players, whoever it is, have hit number one, they're all like, ecstatic about it when it happens. Serena had it when she won the U.S. Open in 08. She raised number one quick, briefly then, and it was like the most excited she got during that whole ceremony when they told her she'd be number one officially. We saw Sharapova, how much it meant to her when she got it back at the French Open. I mean, it is something that means a lot to these players, and I think that's something to keep in mind when you talk about, like, Wozniacki, people try to, you know, throw some shade at Wozniacki and what she's accomplished in her career. She says, you know, I always grew up trying dreaming of being number one, and I did it. And some people might say, well, yeah, but you never won a Grand Slam. It's like, you know, big deal. That is a legitimate goal for people. And I think people can sometimes sweep that aside in the sort of aggrandizement of the Grand Slams being the be-all, end-all nowadays i mean number one is a is a big deal only one person gets to do it and number one is a is a testament to 365 days worth of tennis whereas a slam is a testament to 14 days yeah and 13 days if it's wimbledon so like for example gaston gaddio was never getting number one right i mean i think it you know I'm, I'm sure that if people had a choice they'd want to win a slam i think that there is probably nothing more emotionally satisfying than watching a ball go out and realizing that you are the champion and holding up a trophy as an entire stadium cheers you on and giving a speech and all that. Whereas number one's a bit of a, it's kind of anticlimactic in a, little, in a way, right? Because Can be. you're, yeah, you know, cause you get it and it's like, you know, let's say Serena lost in the semifinals to Sharapova. haha. But let's just suppose <laughs> that it happened. Um, you know, it would have been like, okay, here's Serena's, here's your trophy. And it wouldn't really feel the same. It wouldn't feel like triumphant. So emotionally, I'm sure that a slam means more. But, you know, we saw it with Serena. It really meant a lot. And maybe she's a special case just because of, you know, really kind of her career trajectory and, what you know, how what her life has been like in the last three, four years. You know, but I think this is good because we always say that a motivated and fit Serena is the best player in the world. And so there, those are the two things you have to look out for when you go to gauge Serena, which is, is she fit and is she motivated? And I think that despite the fact that now she's kind of climbed Everest and she's done virtually everything in her comeback and um, is back at number one, the question is, okay, what's motivating you now? And so that's why I really feel like it's important for Vika to be right there. Yeah, to be be there, because she really lacked that. I mean, there was sort of Mm -hmm. this, it really was Serena against the field. And if Azarenka, now granted, this is only Azarenka's second career win over Serena. So let's not, you know, put them neck and neck yet. But if it does emerge that way more and more, I think that's only good for Serena in the same way that, you know, people say that Federer pushed Nadal be vice better and vice versa. And there is some truth to that, but they also both would have won more Grand Slams. The other one wasn't there, I think. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, go- it goes both ways. But I think a little bit of that is healthy to be a little bit of a, a burr in uh, Serena's sides, especially if there gets to be a little bit more uh, juice to this rivalry, as it seemed like might have been developing today with some of the stuff that happened. Right, and I'll just add one more thing, which is that I, I really liked Serena's comment after her quarterfinal win, where she said, you know, she kind of talked about how Sharapova and Azarenka were always right there, always deep in the tournaments, always making the semifinals, and that, and I think she ended that quote with, you know, it's not as lonely at the top as you think. 
Yeah. Which I thought was quite, it was kind of perfect. Like, I was like, that's a great quote. I think that that's exactly what we want to think the WTA is like. That We have to kind of believe that there is rivalry at the top. Otherwise, stability for pure domination's sake is boring as well. Yeah. And it's problematic. You don't want a dictatorship. You want, you know, an oligarchy. Well, I mean, it's the it's a double-edged sword that the WTA always has to deal with, which is that, like... If Serena's number one and p- completely dominating to the fact to the point where everybody laughs at the rest of the tour, that's not good for the tour. No. Right? By the same time, when Serena's, like, not number one and she's losing and there's, like, upsets every single week and, you know, there's pure parody, then everybody's like, oh, you're a joke of a tour because there's no hierarchy and there's no dominance. So, and I think that, honest, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like, obviously, that's particularly a WTA thing. I think that people just like whining and bitching about the WTA and making fun of it and, and people, kicking it. People do look for reasons to, to try to bring down the WTA. Right, That's definitely right. true. It doesn't get the benefit of the doubt the way that the ATP does. Yeah, and fair. so I think that this is, I don't know, I, this is a really good development, I think, for the tour, um, and hopefully they can capitalize on it. And hope, and it's just impressive for Serena getting back to number one. I mean, she did it with, on her ledger right now, a first-round loss at the French Open, no Beijing, which is a mandatory one of the biggest tournaments. No Indian Wells, which is a different issue, but she's never playing that again for all it seems. And that's a lot of big points she could have gotten there. And uh, yeah, and she, and the Olympics, I think it's the main thing that kept her from getting it for so long. I mean, the Olympics really are underscored for how big a prestige that is. When people talk about her dominance, everyone mentions the Olympics, you know, right in there. But on the points... Doha was worth more than the Olympics. Right, and, and that happens to Andy Murray as well. When you yeah. look at Andy Murray, the second half of Andy Murray's 2012, um, and even then making the finals in Australia, you know, the point differential between him and Federer just looks exaggerated for what it, what it is. And, yeah. um, you know, it, it it's, yeah, a lot of that's the Olympics because in our heads we think that it's, you know, 2,000 points, and it's not. No, it's not even 1,000. Yeah. So, yeah, so we'll see how this goes. Oh, uh, Serena's reign at the top because the math could be brief this time it could be long it depends a lot on what azarenka does in dubai and especially in indian wells and i guess what serena does in miami after that so time will tell but it's good to have uh, a, a little battle at the top here with actual Absolutely. head-to-head meetings deciding it mm-hmm. uh so let's talk a little bit about the minor controversy i guess that developed in this final uh, Serena talking to her old bud Ava Azdaraki during the match about Azarenka taking too long between points. Courtney, can you just talk talk as people who didn't see it through what was happening there? Yeah, it was towards the end of the first set. During one of the changeovers, Serena uh, kind of started talking to Ava Azdaraki very politely, awkwardly so. You know those awkwardly polite conversations where you're like going out of your way to be nice? It kind of seemed like that. Right. Because she was like, hey, um... I'm not playing really fast, but like, you know, uh, basically she kind of complained uh, to yep. Azaraki that Azarenka was holding her up on her serve, that not unlike the infamous hen in hand um, of the French Open of years ago, that, that Vika was putting her hand up when Reno was getting ready to serve and thereby very kind of frequently, frequently, very frequently. Yeah. Um, and thereby interrupting uh, Serena's rhythm, obviously. Azaraki's response, which I thought was really confusing, was... You know, I've seen that. I'm, I'm paying attention, and um, I'm timing her, and so far it's okay. I'm keeping an eye on it. I'm keeping, I'm an, keeping eye. an eye on it, right? 
which was confusing to me because my understanding of the rule has never been that it's based on some sort of number of seconds, not for the returner anyway. It's for the returner to play at the server's reasonable pace. Right. And, and reasonable, reasonable being a keyword there. Right, reasonable being the keyword, and which is why I thought Serena made the perfect argument, which is I'm not playing fast and she's like holding me up. You know, and um, because, it, you know, you could have those situations. I was talking to Ben before the podcast of, you know, Yelena Yankovic is one of the recent uh, examples of someone who just for the heck of it will just quick serve. Yeah. Like out of nowhere, she'll just like grab a ball to serve it um, and just really interrupt the rhythm of the, the thing. And so you can understand when somebody puts their hand up because they're like, whoa, even though in that situation, I'm kind of like the server wants to serve that quickly. Like, you let them serve that quickly. So, yeah, so that was the controversy. It never, you know, uh, Azarenka, as far as I can recall, never got a warning on it. No, and she, um, and she didn't stop doing it either. Yeah, really. and it's something that I've noticed that uh, that she does all the time. She does. She definitely does. She definitely does. I know this because I've, I'm personally, like, very sensitive of that rule about, you know, especially because, especially nowadays when people are so adamant about players playing more quickly between points, hence the ATP rule with the time violations and everything. Like, I'm always... I always notice when Vika tells somebody to slow down because I'm like, whoa, you can't do that. So, you know, it's whether we can all argue whether it's gamesmanship or whatever. I think technically it is gamesmanship because that's especially as frequently as she does it. It's not like she does it only after really long rallies. Um, she does it fairly frequently. So, you know, I mean, she and she's not one of the only one to do it. I mean, Sharapova takes a long time between serves, you know, when she's returning, etc. So but what was interesting to me was that the incident even registered on serena's radar that she was bothered by it and i think that got under her skin yeah i think that it's evidence that that vika is kind of worming her way into serena's brain and you know and and kind of making her think and and serena was not playing at her best level nope and i think she was annoyed you know when you're not playing well you're annoyed by anything you see on court and you know you definitely saw that with serena and i think that if she was more comfortable knowing that like at her c level she could beat the person across the net she wouldn't care but I don't think that that was the case today. I, I, I would agree with you 100%. And it's just interesting to see if this will develop into more sort of a, uh, this is the first sort of thing to look back on if this rivalry becomes more contentious in the future, which it certainly could because both of these players, I mean, have it in them to have something blow up. Right. So. And it's so interesting we'll too because it, it does add to kind of the bucket load of stuff, of, of kind of baggage that that Azarenka does carry around with her whether fair or not we can all argue about it about whether it's you know she should get tagged with that MTO stuff or like whatever but you can't deny the fact that that stuff has happened yeah and it is part of kind of her I don't know her on-court baggage that she has to carry around now and and you know as I said I think in the last podcast she doesn't really get the benefit of the doubt anymore so definitely not you know when she does something like that and especially when it comes against a player like Serena who generally lets stuff like that go and, and isn't one to complain to the umpire about anything it you know just kind of adds to this idea of, of Azarenka being a gamer completely agree so we will see and I think that it's probably fair to say that Azaraki should have at least said something to Azarenka about it would you agree with that absolutely yeah so yeah. I'm not sure she handled that that well we'll get to another Doha <laughs> umpire incident later actually a couple more this is not a great week for for the for the ladies in the chair in Doha so uh We'll get to that later, but first onto the uh, onto the men. Specifically with the men, we're going to talk about three tournaments this week. Juan Martín Del Potro won in Rotterdam after Benito beat Federer in fairly meek straight sets. Uh, Ronich turned the lights off when he left in uh, San Jose, third straight title there. 
And most, I guess, importantly, quote-unquote, Rafael Nadal won the first title of his comeback in Sao Paulo. And not in the most uh, impressive way, I guess it's probably fair to say. Yeah, I was way more impressed with him in Chile than I was in Brazil. Yeah. Which was still not being necessarily impressed. So, yeah, he just didn't, uh, he just really didn't look right. And whether or not that's, that's you know, his knees acting up, whether it's the conditions, whether it's mental, it's physical, I think it's all those things. But, you know, what was it? He dropped a set to a guy ranked outside of the top 100 for only the second time since 2005 on clay. Yeah. In Martin Alund, who everybody had to look up. Don't even lie and pretend to tell me that you knew no. who Martin Alund was this week because I, I no made, one did. I made no pretense of knowing who he was. <laughs> yeah, and I I'm, don't think anybody did. <laughs> he had never he had never won an ATP match before this week. So for him to take a set off at all, not playing great tennis, he wasn't zoning or anything. It all right. was just not there. It all only won three of 33 return points in that set he lost three of 33 really and he's one of the best returners in the game and he was standing or he was and he was standing you know meters and meters behind the baseline to return and just doing absolutely nothing and Alund was hitting aces so the stats are a little inflated but that's only because Nadal you know putting in a self where he essentially gave him the guy open court on serve so if if Alund hit a spot it was going to be an ace yeah, it was it was just not an impressive performance whatsoever. And I yeah. think I think more and then Nabandian match, Nabandian didn't play well. But I think more the issue for me with Nadal has been sort of his demeanor off court. And I think that speaks a lot more to where he's at right now than maybe even dropping a set to Martin Alund. Explain, Ben. So Nadal has been doing a lot of lot of press in South America. That's to be expected in Chile, and but especially in Brazil, he seems to have been very demanding, let's say, or very unsatisfied. Uh, sort of, if he was if he was a woman, this would absolutely be called diva behavior from him. <laughs> That's actually true. It's actually yeah. true. He's been complaining about the court, saying the court is too fast, it's too hot, he doesn't like the balls, the court's not good, the time rule is too fast, why should there be a time rule? But he doesn't like the time rule, hard courts are terrible, why do they even make tennis players play on hard courts? No other sport does this, there shouldn't be hard courts. These are all pretty much things he said this week. And for somebody who is seen as this incredible fighter, this guy who's won, what, 11 Grand Slams, to be this sort of, I don't know, whiny just whiny is really the word for it it's bizarre it is not something you would you would ever think be from him although he always has been someone to speak his mind when he doesn't like something i think his sort of willingness to complain about stuff has been sort of underwritten in past but this is it was really really magnified this week right and and it was i definitely you know by by thursday was kind of rolling my eyes a little bit because it just seemed like every you could almost count on like two hours after every single one of his matches, a flurry of headlines of Rafa not being happy about something. And that isn't to say that he wasn't wrong. He wasn't right. I mean, I think that, I mean, you and I might be able to argue about that because I think that I'm, I could be wrong, but I think that I'm a little bit more sympathetic to his complaints. Which, which, which complaints? There's a lot of different complaints. Yeah. The quickness of the courts. Uh, see, it was an indoor clay tournament. I mean, indoor clay is a different animal. Indoor clay, but they picked balls that were extremely the, light. They were the, flying through the air. The, ball, the balls too, I heard were bad. So that's the balls that's were bad. 
2,500, you know, feet above sea level is Sao Paulo. So you add all that plus like no air conditioning in that, in that venue. That looked brutal. Like it was so hot in there. Right. But, but deal with it. It's the same for everybody. That's Sure. No, absolutely. But the thing is that Nadal gets asked the question and what you want him to say is like, to just be like, meh, whatever. I don't care. And maybe that's what other people do. And maybe that would be much more palatable. But I think that Rafa has been one, as you mentioned, who is inclined to speak what is his truth. I'm not saying the truth, but what is truth to him, as opposed to kind of uh, uh, sidestepping a question or, or or throwing something, you know, just being like, oh, no, I'm not going to talk about that or something like that. So he's not the greatest of diplomats in that way. No. I think that, you know, like uh, Roger's much better about it. I think Andy's much better about Novak it. Novak is really good at it. Novak's quite good at it as well. I think Rafa definitely is is kind of the 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 Andy Murray of speaking diplomatically in press conferences, meaning the the outsider. Oh, oh Andy, I, I I jest because I love, but yeah, no. So you know, I think that it was much. I, I definitely you know started to kind of his complaints started to become white noise by the end of the week to me. But you know, he wasn't the only one complaining about a lot of that stuff. No, he wasn't. That's true. And the other players were complaining about the quality of the courts. I mean, there were... They just don't have a mic in front of their mouths, and they're not named Rafael Nadal, you know? When when Dustin Brown makes a complaint about a court, it's not simply a Reuters story, you know? So that is definitely part of it. I understand that part. But some of the things he was saying were things not specific to this week. I mean, going off about the hard courts, saying that there shouldn't be hard courts. Sure, but he's always said that. I know, but it just seemed like renewed, sort of making himself seem like a victim to this. Sure. Which, which seemed, I don't know, it just rubbed me the wrong yeah, way. I will, and, and, and the time roll stuff also. These are things that everyone else is dealing with and just sort of sucking up and going along with. And he's well, first month, of months all, later not, pitching a fit about it. Not everybody is dealing well with the time violations. I give you Yanko Tipsarevich. I give you Thomas Burdik. I give when, you... When they, first, when they first did it, when they first got there... But this is his first time as well. This is like his first like week and a half of playing tennis in like since the time, since the new rule. I mean, I... You know, like, I get it. Like, he, he's not happy about it. And I think that it's kind of funny, like, honestly, just because I'm like, oh, yeah, duh. Of course, Rafa's going to be pissed off about the time violation rule and, sure. you know, things like that. Like, I totally get that side of things. But this is kind of his Yanko Tipsarevich, Thomas Burdik whining about getting the time violation. You know, he's being interviewed in Kuyong when it got called on him in Chennai. And it's not going to be called on him for the next two weeks. And, like, Burdik is complaining. Like... The difference is just that it's Rafa. And right, I and, that think is, that, and that is that is what really what I'm getting at. People right. people expect whininess from Bert, those two personalities you named, especially Burdich and and uh, Tsarovich are two of the whinier players on tour. And I think Rafa doesn't ever really hasn't really ever been grouped in with those people for that trait. But this week he was right there with them. Yeah, no, I think that that's probably fair. I think that Rafa's probably been given a pass, and and because of that. And on some level, rightfully so. I think that he gets a pass because he's kind of earned the pass. Not unlike, you know, Roger kind of gets a pass for saying kind of not so humble things all the time just because Roger's Roger. And you're like, oh, oh, yeah. you. He, like, did. you know? he did. He stopped getting that pass. So now, Roger. No, he still gets the pass. It's just more that he gets called on it. But in kind of like, oh, there goes there goes Sudofed again. And in the same way, I feel like that's how my response was to Rafa, which is just like, oh, there goes Rafa. Like. Diva Rafa doing, you know, doing his thing again. And, you know, I don't really take it all that seriously, but I think that it it wasn't the, fr- 
I mean, it did cross my mind towards the end of last week where I did kind of think, you know, this is kind of unbecoming of a champion. Yeah, that, that's all I was saying, basically. Yes, no, and that's, so it goes. I mean, if he wants to be Diva Rafa, he can be Diva Rafa. Right. I mean, that's fine. Own it. Yeah, no, exactly. Own it and be like, what? I'm Diva Rafa. Make sure there's, you know, such and such in my dressing room. And <laughs> I will take 30 seconds between points. And I will touch my nose and my ears twice before each serve, you know, because I'm Rafa. And that's how I roll. Kiss the rings, essentially. <laughs> yeah. That's that's fine if he wants to do that. I'm just saying it, when he does that, it should be recognized as such. And I think this is what's been happening. Well, yeah, I mean, but I think that the, like your reaction to all of, of, of like Diva Rafa is, I think, similar to kind of my reaction to... Like pseudo fed. Oh yeah, but pseudo fed's just. I mean, it's it's such a caricature of itself at this point, though. No, 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 not pseudo fed. The, the no, like, I know, I, I know, I, I, no, I mean, actually, when Roger sits down in a person and says it's great to be great, right? You know, yeah, but people, I think people sort of point and laugh at that now, behind his back in a very, very unanimous way, and I don't think that's happening yet with Diva Rafa. True. By the way, Diva Rafa would be a great Twitter account if anybody <laughs> wants to make it. We're just putting that out there. We want a nickel per tweet, people. A Pretty nickel much. per tweet. Tithe to us. Yeah, I just I'm just saying that Diva Rafa should have that sort of every hashtag, you know, unsatisfied or whatever. It wants to be this equivalent <laughs> of it's humble, you know. It's something something just to show. That's all I'm saying. It's it, I think this has gone sort of under accepted. Like yeah, just not be, talking because, about this right, aspect well, of Rafa. Right, because people are talking and this Federer pseudo fed thing only really started in earnest, you know, twelve, eighteen months ago. Just saying for Rafa. So some, somebody tough. out there who is good at it, okay, because let us point out that oh. PseudoFed is good because PseudoFed, the, whoever's behind the PseudoFed Twitter, Twitter is amazing. Damn like, it, the, the handle Ra- Diva Rafa is taken. Oh, bummer. Well, you know what's funny, though? When you mentioned Diva Rafa, the immediate picture I had in my head was all those, like, unflattering, quote-unquote, pictures of Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> Like I just, I've been sitting here trying to think of a Beyonce Rafa kind of like handle, but I can't. Uh, but it is kind queen, of like Queen Rafa, I guess would be queen Rafa. Queen, but... nah, well, maybe I don't know. Nah, not Queen yeah. Rafa. But yeah, anybody's out there who is like good at Twitter and gets why it is funny that Rafa complains all the time, or not all the time, but like a lot. <laughs> A lot okay. about, about this about like, don't even anything. come back at me and say that he doesn't because he does but like you know i'm not talking to you ben i'm talking no, I to know. people but yeah somebody who 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 gets it start a twitter account you will be as big as pseudo fed and we'll re- and we'll retweet you if you tweet it and see our underscore tennis for yeah, sure for sure so while rafa was complaining to the press in brazil Peter Wozniacki was complaining from the stands to the chair empire in the middle of a match. And this you wrote about very well, I thought, Courtney. So why don't you explain to us what happened with Peter and his fellow Scandinavian, Julie Shendley? Seriously, this was like Scando on Scando crime. Yeah. That's not cool. No. It was it was some Borg Edberg stuff. It was. It was. Um, so Peter Wozniacki, famously Caroline Wozniacki's father, Famous, oh, famously, famously, there. famously um, was in the stands watching his daughter play Mona Barthel in the, what was that, fourth round? Third? No, third round. I think. Third, third round. On an outside court in Doha. A Barthel, uh, Wozniacki was a set and a break up. She was serving on game point 3-1 up in the second set. When Barthel hit looked what looked like an outright backhand winner that was called in by the Lions judge, I believe. And, but somebody in the crowd yelled out. 
quite loudly to the point where if you're watching at home, you thought that that was a call from the lines judge. Yeah. Their confusion kind of erupted because Shenley, the umpire, was set to award the point to to Barthel. Wozniacki argued that it should have been a let. And then on top of that, she felt like she had been robbed by a lot of kind of line calls. There was no Hawkeye on this court. So she thought that the umpire was kind of robbing her in a lot of calls uh, throughout the match. So she kind of let Shinley have it on many different fronts. She returned back to the back of the court to serve when all of a sudden Peter Wozniacki starts. Well, he was kind of, I think, already yelling, but because things kind of died down, you started to hear him yell and he was yelling directly at the umpire. And he was sitting uh, fairly near her. Yes. And, stands and, were set up. Right behind her, but fairly near her, yelling at her that it should be called a let and a replay because some drunk guy yelled from the crowd, which my understanding, having asked specifically this question to a number of people who have uh, who are umpires, um, was like totally wrong. Um, but uh, but basically he yells at, at Julie Shenley. Julie Shenley finally uh, relents and calls for a replay, which she never should after have After engaging with him first. Yes, after engaging with him. Like- and Peter be quiet, essentially. And and she eventually changes her mind. And she looked and rattled. Replay. And she does look rattled. What do you think, what do you feel about Peter injecting himself in this match? Well, let me ask you what you think, Ben, because I wrote a whole long diatribe yeah. on it already, and so I haven't heard your thoughts on it. I would completely agree with what you wrote, pretty much, for those who haven't read it. I mean, you should. It's on tennis.si.com. Oh, thanks, Ben. No prob. Happy to plug. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, you were basically saying that it's embarrassing and it was juniorsy, and it was. It was Bush League stuff from Peter. For somebody who, I mean, you talk about, you know, what is expected of champions, quote-unquote, with Rafa. I mean, not that people hold coaches necessarily the same standards, but they should. I mean, his daughter's been number one. She's been a very, very good representative of herself for the most part on court. And for him to continue to hang around and sort of make some, an ass of himself in this situation, I don't think that can really be argued, just reflects badly on her. It should be embarrassing to her to have her dad heckling the umpire during a match from the stands. And then especially to have it work. I mean, right. to, have, to have Julie Shenley actually sort of change her mind about it makes Wozniacki look all the worse and Wozniacki family look all the worse. Right. So I thought that was just, I mean, people have talked about, you know, should she get rid of Peter? Should she not? This is one where you got to be like, you know, dad come on let me let me do my thing here what are, what are you doing so hopefully i mean hopefully she told them that was not cool after the match i mean i can't i obviously wasn't there i don't know what their dynamic is like in that sort of situation but that was that was a lot uh, i don't think there were some reports and we talked about this a little bit offline before there were some reports that people thought that peter was getting they were trying to eject him from the stands never saw any evidence of that in the video someone a, a official from the tournament went to talk to him while he was doing it but that was it but still, I think that the uh, the tour should, you know, give Peter, as her, in the role of her coach, a talking to, saying this is not acceptable behavior for a coach during a match. And right. if you do this again, uh, your daughter will get fined and you can be banned. I mean, there is a code of conduct in the WTA rulebook. And that, that code of conduct, because I looked it up specifically, does apply to a player's entourage. And to me, you know, whether it be a match ban or a two match ban or a tournament, not a tournament ban might be much, but or monetary fine, whatever it is. I mean, it was just, it made the tour look horrible. It made Caroline look horrible. She's a multi-million dollar, 22-year-old professional athlete. She is, you know, a, one of the elite, you know, women to do her job. And she looked like an absolute child with her dad 
popping his head around it and bullying effectively an umpire and changing a, a call in his daughter's favor. I mean, that's it's just so stupid. I mean, it, it just was, it, it was so amateurish of him. It was, and it was and, bush league, and it was just. I mean, it was infuriating to kind of watch. And I saw this happen actually when I was at the college thing. Um, I was actually watching. Mm. I think I mentioned before, Lauren McHale was actually playing someone whose dad was there watching, and there was a dispute over a let call or something, and the dad you know, started arguing from the stands with the chair empire. And Laura McHale, who's playing college tennis, was like, what are you doing? You know, go away. So it wasn't her dad, but which makes it all easier for her to (laughs) to argue because she was, she was, you know, fairly feisty out there to begin with. But yeah, it was just something that should not be, should not be uh, accepted at the top level of the game like that for a professional sport that is, you know, a credible entity. It makes it look really, really Bush league. Right. And and let's not I mean, let's not underplay the effect of that sort of conduct on the match itself. I mean, Wozniacki, yes, she had taken the first set seven six. She was up a break three one game point. A replay means she still has game point and is only one point away from winning that game and going and up. And I think she one. did win the replay, if I remember correctly. Yes, and I think that she and she did win the replay. So had Barthel won the point, it would have gone to Deuce. And who knows? I mean, she can break Wozniacki's serve, no problem. Um so it's just it's a very frustrating thing to see, um, you know, and obviously Barthel's kind of new to all of this. So even seeing all that going down, you know, whether it rattled her and kind of, you know, confused her as to what was going on and why she didn't win that point. You know, it's very, very frustrating to just kind of see all that go down because it's just not it's just not how the WTA should be. And, and it makes Shenley look, you know, completely uh, a spineless, which you don't which affects your reputation as an umpire. Yeah, uh, play, players will have seen this and will know which umpire that happened to. Yeah, Chenley yeah. had another bad incident in the quarterfinals she did later with Azarenka and Irani, where it, this was more of just a brain fart than anything. But I think I think it probably was residual from this Wozniacki incident. She was just sort of rattled and couldn't remember what happened in a point, according to her, which right. Irani was absolutely incredulous about. I mean, how can you be a chair empire and forget what happened in a point that ended 10 seconds ago? And let's not, I mean, you know, I didn't want to write about it in my piece, but let's not, you know, ignore the kind of gendered nature of what happened, which is like, you know, Peter Wozniacki, who is, you know, can look pretty intense when he's screaming, you know, screaming at a female line, line uh, umpire yeah. and the umpire kind of relenting and changing her mind. I, I hate that. I hate seeing that. And, you know, because you kind of have the sense that if like Kate or Nooney was in the was in the seat, like he'd be like, what? Whatever. And just, yeah. part of that is also Cater and, and Layani and all these people. I mean, right, they I wouldn't mean, have gotten that. And it's the same thing. I feel like that was an issue with Serena at, uh, at when in Shino at the 09 Open. I mean, she saw this little tiny woman sitting there. And felt like, you know, she could feel free to pick on her. Where next year's U.S. Open, or sorry, this year's U.S. Open, where she got called for a football, thought everyone sort of gasped. It was this enormous guy sitting there, and she didn't do anything. And just it's what people feel, who they feel entitled to bully and pick on. Right. I think I it's mean, always, it always goes to these gender yeah, size you factors. It, you yeah. see it with Roddick. Remember Roddick against Tipsarovich? I remember this very specifically when he yeah, got called a, by football football by a woman lines judge. Although in and fairness he, to Roddick, he does it to everybody. Roddick, I feel like, is an equal opportunity bully on that. Kind yeah, of. but he really laid into her like specifically. Like he just like p- picked her out and just like made an absolute fool out of her. And you know, but and, and to be fair, yes, Roddick is kind of equal opportunity in that way. You know, never kind of. I always notice that whenever it just looks like somebody's bullying, you know, and um, in terms of identifying somebody, they feel like they can just 
go to town on and get their frustration out and so such the WTA step up and set and make it and make it very very clear the team was Nianki that that is not going to be tolerated precisely right and I mean the problem is that you it's not just pulling somebody aside behind the scenes and being like slap on the wrist and move on I mean this sort of stuff needs to there needs to be a public statement on it yeah. There needs to be, you know, whether that's a fine or whether that's something. Or a new press release about new policies or something, you know. Right, because it has to do need some sort of punitive action in order to deter other camps from doing the exact same thing. Because yeah. this freaking worked. It did. You know, Peter yelled at her. She changed her mind and his daughter went on to win the match. I mean, <laughs> like, where where's the disincentive? A bit of embarrassment because yeah. some writer, like, writes about it? and you No. Know. No, and Peter Wozniacki. I mean, I've met Peter Wozniacki. I've always, I mean, he's always been perfectly nice to me and stuff. But he's not someone who I ever would have accused of embarrassing easily or, you know, feeling right. <laughs> remorse easily. He's a very sort of brash guy. So they gotta, they gotta, you know, sort of hit him where it hurts. Whether that's a fine to his daughter, which hopefully she makes him pay, or whether it's, you know, a ban, even for a week. If it got announced that he was banned for a week, it would massively hurt his reputation and i think a ban would be would be huge because she does utilize on-court coaching and he is her coach yeah like this would have an an effect an, an effect yeah him not being in a tournament so yeah i you know they're not going to do anything about it and it looks as far as for the most part because it just didn't really catch on i i don't think that anybody really i mean bloggers obviously caught on to it i think Mainstream. It didn't, it, didn't, it didn't break out of ten, the tennis world, basically. Right, mainstream-wise, I'm like I'm probably the only one that wrote about it, I think. Yeah. Like, you know, and, and that's fine, but, you know, it was it was problematic, and it was, it uh, I don't know, it left a very bad taste in my mouth, that's for sure. Let's get to something better tasting, shall we? <laughs> tasty questions from our listeners, Courtney. We do, we do, we have many, because our listeners are a tasty, tasty bunch. Oh, yes, they are. Yeah. Not not to sound too cannibalistic, but they are fairly tasty. They are. They're good. They're good peeps, is what we're saying. Good like, peeps. Like like the Easter candy, you mean? No, because peeps are disgusting. <laughs> what? Peeps are great. First of all, peeps, peeps are gross. Peeps are great. First of all, the Washington Post is this incredible peeps diorama contest every year, which is unbelievable. It has like people using the rabbit peeps and the and the because no the one wants to peeps. eat them. Well, yeah, that's true. You don't <laughs> eat peeps, and you can eat like one peep a year. But what you do is you make art out of peeps. And then you do peep jousting, where you put where you take two peeps, face them against each other, stick a toothpick in each one, <laughs> put them in the microwave, and they expand, and one of them will pop the other one first, and that's how you have peep jousting. You're a moron. <laughs> have you really never, never, I've never, never set, set up jousting. a, a peep jousting? Oh, okay, Indian Wells activity. We'll, we'll do it. That's a good point, actually. It would be right around Easter, huh? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, we'll do that. Player, player restaurant. <laughs> like, borrow one of the uh, microwaves <laughs> in there, because that's the shared thing for media and players there. So we'll, we'll be there, peep jousting up a storm. That would be actually hilarious. Like, you could, you could just imagine people, like, coming into like one like, dining being, area. What, what is this? And everybody's, like, holding dollar bills, like, throwing <laughs> dollars down, like, on, on peep jousting. Like, you know you could totally make that happen. We, this could almost be a good first video for us here. I like it. All right. I like it. Okay. Anyway, so b- b- before we get into sugar MMA activities, Courtney, we have some some questions that are we less, do. less violent. Hopefully, we don't want any innocent marshmallow shed today. Never, never. Okay, so first question that we have is from our Facebook page from Steve Kinslow. Hey, Hi, Steve. Steve. 
And we would, I would, well, I don't know about we, but I would just like to apologize because a bunch of these questions were posted on our Facebook page, but I didn't see them because I clearly don't understand how Facebook works. So some of these might be a little bit old, but we, I felt bad. So I wanted to include them from Steve Kinslow. Brisbane is one of my favorite tournaments because of the great field they attract, but mostly because of their fantastic internet and YouTube presence. Quickly posting highlights, interviews, and full matches whets my tennis appetite for the year all the way over here in the U.S. Mountain Time Zone. I don't know about another tournament that does so much for the online fan. Do you see other tournaments following suit? Thoughts, Ben? First, I just want to give sort of a most improved shout out to the Australian tournaments this year. Oh my gosh, yeah. On social media, because last year, as we, I don't know if we ever talked about it on a podcast, this actually might have been a little before the podcast even started last January, but they were not great. I mean, they were constantly tweeting inane things. They were sort of timeline pollution, as we put it. I think we actually did talk about that issue early in the show, early in our series. But yeah, Respect the timeline. Respect the timeline. Still applies. But yeah, for them, this they were really very good at putting up YouTube stuff of matches. There was a ton, a ton of online streaming that's been available. Hobart, I know, set it up so that every single one of their matches could be streamed on YouTube for free. And that's a very non-shady stream. It's not like something we have to worry about getting viruses or anything. It's YouTube. It's, it's nice. Uh, yeah, and it's been a, a big improvement for them. In terms of the Twitter stuff, I think it helps every tournament to have good Twitter for that sort of purpose, for, you know, impressing somebody in the mountain time zone, which to them, I'm not sure they always see as a worthwhile endeavor tournaments. A lot of tournaments, when they use Twitter, use social media, they only are focused on the bottom line of how do we sell more tickets? Ah, let's use Twitter to sell more tickets and make more money. And so that's obviously fair. I mean, they're businesses, but when tournaments can sort of really go full out on being fan friendly, I appreciate it for sure. Yeah, and you see that particularly with the Australian Open. I think that one thing that you see a lot is that if a tournament is really just driven by metrics, in other words, the person who has been hired to run the Twitter account or the communications team that's behind the Twitter account is really at the end of the tournament, they're going to have to be able to go back they're going to have to go back to their bosses and justify their employment. Yeah. How do you do that? You do it by certain specific metrics, which is like retweets mentions um that sort of thing like followers followers follower growth etc a lot of that becomes artificial when you see a lot of tournaments like retweeting compliments yeah that's that's kind of how they're artificially bumping their numbers twitter wise in terms of mentions and retweets and things like that it's like basically encouraging people to like write them in hopes that those they'll get retweeted. Yeah, you know what I mean? Kind of grovelly. Yeah. Right, and it's it's kind of a bleacher reporty way to. Oh, oh, cold. I know. I'm cold. sorry. Don't I, even use the br word. God. I went. I went there. I went there. But yeah, it's it's kind of a way to just inflate the very metrics that upon which you are gauged or or measured. So you see it quite a bit. But I feel like with the Australian Open, they are one of the the singular tournament that has done it really really well, where they balance that because they do do that they do provide a lot of fan interaction and i think fans generally appreciate that but at the same time provide meaningful information do all the streams and and you know video like on youtube you know full matches you can replay right that was new and those are also tv rights issues a lot of times a lot that's, of times tournaments don't have the yeah, thing don't have the capability right. to put up highlights to put up uh full matches even more so 
to put up interviews. Interviews are often uh, embargoed by the press itself. I mean, there's a, a you know a group of tennis writers, uh, the International Tennis Writers Association, which neither of us are members of at the moment. Um, yeah, we're we're, su- we're such uh, we're such you know loiterers in there at their party crashing. But anyway, they sometimes determinants will insist on there being embargoes on interviews, on transcripts, and and sometimes federations can do it themselves. Like the French Federation embargoes themselves from their transcripts. Right. Uh, Australia was started out a little bit slower with their website this time, but by the end, transcripts were going up pretty much as soon as the media got them. Yep. So I think fans really appreciate that. Media sometimes don't appreciate not having a head start for that kind of thing. Which is understandable from a business perspective. Definitely. Because Cause I've been on that end. I mean, both of us have been on that end where as much as we are champions of like information being free, like immediately, um, I think we both have been on that side where we are the ones asking questions and we're like, oh, gosh, darn it. Like now it's already been tweeted about and I need to do a story about it that I'm not going to file for another six hours. You know? Right. And but, it's, on, it's on the website, you know, right after. So when you, when it's there, by the time you get back to your desk, you might be like, really? So I don't think either of us, I mean, both of us are definitely against the French Open policy of never publishing transcripts for the first part. I mean, that's very clear. The way, they, the way they do that now just seems very uh, Soviet. And uh, <laughs> so now they have these new systems that uh, put it up, you know, I think Wimbledon has a 24-hour embargo or something. That's a little bit slow, maybe. But if it was, you know, three, four, five, six hours, right. that'd be nice. Right. Yeah, yeah. Saying. I mean, that's yeah, people do appreciate that. And I mean, right. that are on site. Yeah. But just in terms of um, just, you know... I think that a lot of like the online streaming is huge. I think there's a big future in that. Australia has always been on the forefront of that. And, you know, I think that we really have to tip our caps to kind of the Australian tournaments and Tennis Australia for kind of being the startup, for being the organization that is thought outside of the box in terms of how they use social media, in terms of how they use online streaming, what they allow um, in order to really kind of capture the market as being the fan-friendly tournament. Yeah, no, they, and they have done no that other very tournament. well. Yeah, and no other tournament can can match them on that. They've earned a ridiculous amount of goodwill with fans on that in that way, where a lot of people will say now, like the Aussie Open is like their favorite slam, which would be ludicrous, like five years ago. Oh, totally. And, and is that is yeah. that worth much to them on their bottom line? Eh, debatable. I mean, like I said, having someone who lives in the Mountain Time Zone, like Steve, like our questioner Steve Kinslow, who is enjoying them, is it's good, you know, for sort of their it's a, like it's a bragging prestige, rights prestige thing yeah but for tournaments to operate more like a business the ones that come to mind for this for me are like the u.s open obviously mm. miami i feel like can be a little bit more this way mm. yeah it's not always as much of an incentive and there's not the will there but on the online streaming thing i will say there's been a lot this year in 2013 a lot of streaming um there's always been like some pretty sketchy challenger streams that are funded by betting websites and stuff for the men there's always been a good amount of depth in men streaming for lower level events, but uh, the USTA is doing challenger streaming now free on their website. All their pro circuit events have cameras. So I went to go tune in to watch some of Taylor Townsend in Midland, Michigan. That was actually a very high quality multi-camera stream with commentary, which stunned me. Yeah, and uh, San Jose had streaming of all their matches. It, it's been it's been impressive. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, hopefully, hopefully we see it more. I think that if you are if you have your fingers crossed that it's going to expand that way in the states, I think that that I would not hold you know don't hold your breath. I think that uh, again, what Ben mentioned, you know, TV rights really do drive 
a lot of that sort of stuff. I think also kind of the the press lobby, you know, the the media lobby will determine, you know, interviews and and things like that getting posted. But, you know, but but tournaments are trying. I've I've had a lot of conversations with with um, you know, different people at different tournaments about them wanting to kind of you know, expand their websites. And I always tell them, you know, like the biggest thing, the best thing you can do is to provide good, unique content. Yeah. Like, you know, if you want, like one of the things that I was really impressed with when I, when I was working at Wimbledon was just how well they did photos that they had their own photo people running around the grounds, taking pictures. And, you know, you can't just port like Getty, like onto your site and expect people to come to your site. Like that's a bit weak, like give them something unique yeah. to, see and, and that yeah, goes with like a uh, video content like interviews like yeah you know, those a lot are of... like one-on-one interviews like i remember wimbledon did these things that were like quizzes they did with the players yeah asked, like serena like trivia question about her own career but she was as expected terrible at <laughs> yeah so that kind of thing where they do these unique things auckland doing those you know funny you know kind of oh videos. yeah auckland, the way the way that, that was incredible that, yeah that james, james. Ciccone is down there yeah. down there it's been giving that a lot of personality and identity that it never would have because it's a pretty right out-of-the-way tournament. I mean, it's, you know, really the arguably the most remote stop anywhere on the tour. Right, right. So, yeah. yeah. All that, and then on top of that, like, you know, unique written content. I think, actually, Miami is quite... Used to be really good about this, about, you know, doing, like, one-on-one Q&As that were quite good. So, you know, I mean, between those three things, plus social media, like, you know, you can really do a lot to the for the fan. But I think that, you know, it's tough to really... You know, getting back to what Ben had talked about before, it's it's really hard to convince tournaments that there is an impact on their bottom line to invest this type of money. And so a lot of times they just, you know, they're lazy and they just hire like some like intern to, to run their Twitter and their intern is complete idiot as it comes to Twitter. And yeah, I had, I've had I've had run ins with idiotic like Twitter people before who they don't know what they're doing. They have absolutely no idea what they're doing. And was, it's hurting their tournament. It is. I was at a tournament in 2012, a tournament which will go unnamed. <laughs> and the person who was running their Twitter had been actually hired by the tournament to be an usher and didn't know anything about the Twitter. And then at the last time, they were like, oh, actually, can you run our Twitter instead? And he was like, sure, I'm happy to help. It did not go well. It did not go well because once things got started going wrong, it's all fine and good when everything's going well because nobody, you're not dealing with a lot of negative feedback. Twitter with, is not easy to do perfectly it's, it's i mean do right great. it's not easy it's not something you can just jump in i mean they have these twitter archives you can download now i'm sort of hesitant to even look at mine because i don't know what the hell i was doing when i first got on twitter you know three years ago right uh i don't i don't i kind of don't want to see even though most of it was actually i know just like automatically linking stories for my first blog which is pretty dull right but, but yeah i mean right. that's all yeah. i was doing for it I, w- I didn't know how to engage on it whatsoever well, like i i mean i got into a bit of a spat with the twitter account for kuyang this year where they tweeted out the wrong result. Um, I think they said, I forget which result was it, but I think they basically said that Raonic lost when he won or something like that. And like, I pointed it out to them like perfectly politely, like this is wrong. You should probably, and it was like on their website as well, the wrong result. And so I tweeted them and said, you know, this result is wrong. You should probably fix that because people are relying on your website for scores. Like, you know, and they got really snippy with me and like really defensive and like, well, that's not, we don't deal with the web. Like we only do Twitter. And I was like, yeah, well, that's fine. But you are on Twitter. You are the tournament representatives, representative on Twitter. I am voicing my concern to you. Please take it to whoever, you know, you need to. 
And they were so snippy. They were like, you know, patience is a virtue. And I'm like, no, it's not actually. Like people are relying on your website for the proper result and you have a result that's wrong. Like as it turns out, I found out that the person is like a volunteer or like an unpaid volunteer. And it just really kind of emphasized within my own mind that like tournaments, just pay the money. Hire the right people because I, you know, there is a small subset of people who know how to do this well and they're good at their jobs and they will make, they will like really, really impact how your tournament is seen by fans and by media. Agreed. It's worth it. If you're you're going to do it, do it well. Mm -hmm. Or just if you're not going to do it well, honestly, don't even have a Twitter. Don't even bother. Yeah. It's, it's, you get less, you get, it's more hurtful to have bad Twitter than no Twitter at all. I agree. So there we go. Okay. Uh, another question that we got on our Facebook page is from Albert Sue. Hi, Albert. Hi, Albert. Um, question for Podcast 27. If Michael Chang made his historic Grand Slam run today at 17 years old as a heavy underdog, what type of hype would he receive? Would it be as crazy as Lee Na and Jeremy Lin, or would it be more muted? Thanks and love the podcast. So I think what Albert Sue is pointing out there, for, he didn't write this explicitly, but if you notice the three people who he mentioned there, they are all Asian. Mm-hmm. So Michael Chang, Lena, uh, Jeremy Lin, actually, and I mean, Lena is a different case because she's not Asian American and the other two right. are. So yeah, Courtney, what what do you think would happen? I'm trying to think of a hypothetical person. Let's make, I guess, imagine, there's no one really, who, let's say, I guess, I don't know, let's say Grace Min or something. It's the only one I can think of. Is there, okay. is there, are there any other up and coming Asian Americans you can think of? Because that really is sort of what he's getting at. Yeah. Asian, Asian from Asia is a different different animal correct correct yes i mean what lena has done is is a completely different beast and culturally it's it's more about getting access to asia i mean i I, as a market and inspiring china and asian asians um to pick up a racket and to play tennis i think that you know there's no analogy to that with what the jeremy lin phenomenon was last year and it was one that that i you know it definitely hit home a lot to me um just because jeremy lin was a guy who I looked at and I watched him talk and I watched him play. And I just was like, I know you, you are my friends. You are the guys that I went to college with who played basketball every single freaking night, like at the, you know, the gym at, in college who, you know, listened to hip hop and, but were like God fearing Christians. I just knew that guy. And so I that's think a, that's that, a real, real community out there. I mean, I know plenty of those mm-hmm. people too. And I didn't, and obviously where you went to college is a lot more, Asian than where I went to school in Michigan, but still, I mean, that's a huge, I mean, it's out there and it's been really underrepresented in pro sports compared to what their love of sports is. Right. And, and not just even pro sports, but just underrepresented in general. I mean, I think that in pop culture, yeah, yeah, in pop culture, that was really, I mean, people kind of dismissed a lot of the Jeremy Lin stuff is just like, oh, it's just like an Asian person doing well. Like how different is that? I mean, duh, like Michael Chang's done this. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is a completely different time. Um, and Jeremy Lin just, he was us. And to a generation of Asian Americans, which I would say are like, you know, the under 40 set who, you know, first generation, our parents are immigrants um, and were born here yeah. um, and are basically, we're basically Americans. Like, I mean, not to say that we're like, no, you know. Oh, but, you're totally American. We're totally American. born here, you're American. 
And right. so that was the thing about Jeremy Lin was that he was like an American and he wasn't like up there talking about anything really Chinese based or like whatever. And it just it resonated and, you know, was really an inspiring thing. And um, so for somebody to do that within tennis, you know, a Michael Chang nowadays, honestly, I think the, re- the reaction would be more like, yay, we have an American <laughs> Grand Slam champion more so than Asians kind of being like, holy crap, Michael Chang. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the biggest reason why is because, just because of tennis's stature within pop culture. Um, you know, with Jeremy Lin, we were able to see him do these remarkable things on like every other day, like during the height of Lin's sanity. He was doing ridiculous things that just, I mean, I cried watching Jeremy Lin play. I will not even joke. Like it meant so much to me. And I can't think that that would actually happen. And he and he did those things in Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. He did those things on an NBA stage against NBA players who everyone knows and who are in you know thirty cities in America. My, when Michael Chang did it, I feel like there wasn't the same sort of excitement on it because he did it. First of all, he did it in France mm-hmm. against you know a bunch of European people um, at a different time of day. It wasn't a prime time event, and I, I don't remember what it was like in 1989 when he won. Obviously. But, yeah, it's just different. I feel like tennis also is a sport that people don't see as as alien to Asians yeah. as that NBA basketball right. um, where there really hadn't been any Asian-American. I mean, there have been, like, you know, Yao Ming, but right. that's different because he was, you know, a seven-foot something, you know, and he was freak Chinese. of nature. Yeah, and he was Chinese. And I don't look at there. Yao Ming and I think, oh, that's me. Like, yeah. You know, but whereas, like, Jeremy Lin, like, absolutely. And, you know, there are very few of those kind of people like they're these like asian american kind of leader not leaders because they're not they're not leading but they're they're and they're icons within kind of the young asian american community i mean jeremy lynn is one of them i don't know like david chang who's like a chef in new york like people like asian americans absolutely love him like and really lift him up and and a lot of it just really has to do with like when you are kind of operating as such an outsider I think within a certain community and then like kind of dominating that said community. Um, it's like really cool like yeah. for the rest of us to see. And I just, uh, what you said is absolutely right. I just don't think that, you know, Michael Chang seems as alien within a tennis community as Jeremy Lin yeah. did um, within uh, basketball or even as Lee Na did within like tennis. Right. Because to have a pure Chinese you know player to do it. Whereas like Michael Chang's, he's an American and um and the other sport where there's been i think probably the most asian success in terms of sports that are big in the u.s is golf uh anthony kim has done well there's a ton of female golfers who are asian um michelle we uh you know and like the korean actual people from korea is a huge percentage of the lpga now and uh, i think honestly to an extent where it sort of hurt the visibility of the game in the u.s where it's you know americans feel like they're losing foothold on it women's golf has actually suffered a lot the last 10 years and i haven't paid enough attention to it to know why which is sort of a damning thing in and of itself so i'm not someone who you know as you probably tell from anyone who's listening to this podcast i'm not someone who you know routinely just ignores women's sports for the sake of not you know oh they're women like a lot of people probably do so yeah so they've had some issues there but i think and but it's just the sort of country clubness of tennis i feel like and asians in the u.s are sort of a not or a different, I mean, every minority group, not to paint with broad brushes, but it's different. And Asians, for the most part, have not been, have not had problems with economic mobility. And so right. getting into sort of country club situations like that has not been something completely 
you know, impossible for them. So tennis, I don't think it would have the same ripple as, as Lynn Sanity did in that sort of NBA, you know, yeah, all, everything that goes with the NBA. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a, you know, it's a street culture. It's, it's um, you know, urban. Yeah. And that in and of itself just doesn't seem to be particularly Asian American. But what Lynn Sanity kind of revealed is that it is very Asian American. That, like, you saw all these essays being written by, like, these young Asian American writers, like, in their 20s and 30s who were like, that is me, though. Like, I grew up in a white or, like a white suburb or a yeah. black sub, you know, a, in a, within a black community. And I listen to hip hop and I like, all my friends are black and like whatever. And I play basketball every single it's a very day. Very assimilated group. It's not just people, you yeah. know, there are obviously the stereotypes of, Oh, you know, Asians just, you know, stick to themselves and take violin lessons or something. I mean, which it's not, we do, which but, that's not do just us. <laughs> but that's not it. And that's, that's really, not really it. not it, but it'd be, it'd be cool to see more diversity out there. And it'd be cool to see if there was a young Asian player coming up for them to get you know some uh some hype and not to be ignored if graceman does make a big move for example she did when the, the junior u.s open a couple years ago mm-hmm. if she can make a big move and be embraced the same way that a sloan stevens or that a, a melanie udan has been that would be great because other players like uh like chang to some extent he wasn't really given that much attention when he was near the top of the game um, Kevin Kim was a top 100 player who got largely ignored. Malin too, Lilia Osterlo were both top 50 players, I believe, who didn't really get much press ever. It, it'd be nice to see the tennis community, you know, acknowledge their presence if it yeah. did happen again. All right, so now we're going to do another installment of our Take a Number series where we take a random number between 1 and 100 through a random number generator and talk about the woman and man who correspond to those rankings on the WTA and ATP tour ladders. So, ready to rock, Courtney? Ready to roll the ready dice, see what roll. we get? All yep. right. Here we go. Between 1 and 100, our number is... Ah, not bad for us, because we get a lot of high numbers. This is 33. Yay! One out of the seedings. Actually, probably safely to see, because you got to assume somebody's going to pull out. Ooh, okay. <laughs> I'm, 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 ex- I'm excited for uh, for this. This is this is actually a really good discussion topic. This, this okay. uh, person, uh, Courtney, who is the number thirty-three on the women's side? The number thirty-three from the women's side is a the number. Actually, no, she's not. Yeah, she is the number one Belgian oh. now that Kim Kleisters has retired. Yeah. One Miss Janina Wickmeyer. Janina. Yanina Wickmeyer. Wickmeyer. Um, whereabouts is Yanina Wickmeyer? Who knows? But um, yes, she is ranked number 33, and she is our pick this week. How and, about you? And for the men, we have someone who this time last year, I think, was about 20 spots higher or a little more, but has since not played a whole lot uh, from the United States. It is Marty Fish. Oh, so that I, I, I'm interested. We we haven't really talked about him on here. I think we definitely definitely should. But let's get to Yanina because there's definitely less there with her. Yanina made a breakout at the 2009 U.S. Open when the draw completely fell apart, and she made the semifinals. I say that with love. <laughs> she played really no one. She played a, a Grand Slam quarterfinal against a uh, Katarina Bondarenko. Yes. I mean, there was a Wickmeyer Katarina Ponorenko Grand Slam quarterfinal that happened in that tournament. And the winner played Wozniacki in the semis on Armstrong in front of about 200 people, while the famous uh, Kleisters 
Serena Shino match happened on on Ash. I mean, that was just a weird, weird tournament. That was the Melanie Dan tournament. It was a lot of stuff happened there. Um, yeah, but Wickmeyer really hasn't risen back to those heights yet again. And I don't really. I mean, I would be interested to hear your thoughts about this, Ben, because when you watch Yanina Wickmeyer play at her best. Or even, like, not when she's playing well. Like, you see so much potential there. She's a tough out. She's a tough out. She's good. I mean, she's good at tennis. Yeah. Like, and, and um, you know, she's tall. She's six feet tall. She's strong. She's fit. She Her serve needs a little work. But, you know, there's there's a lot of potential there. And she's a fighter. I mean, she, she oh, is yeah. a competitor. That's for dang sure. Um, and so I'm always a bit uh, disappointed by her results, I guess. I, I, I just, she's a player that's still with some, for some reason in my mind, like when I pull up a draw, I'm like, oh, wow, this player's got Yanina Wickmeyer. That's not going to be easy. And then it is. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, she's unpredictable I feel... though. I mean, she can pull off big wins. You mentioned Kleisters. She beat Kleisters in Miami last year. Yeah, but Kim and played horribly. Kim played horrible, but still, I mean, it was, you know. Sure. It's still a win. Yeah, she's yeah. good for an upset every once in a while, like a top yeah. 20 upset. She's pretty good for a top 20 upset, right. at least a few times a year. But, but she used to be top 20, though. That's the thing. She did. So she's definitely slipped. She wears a remarkable amount of blue and pink outfits. Every mm-hmm. single thing she wears is like bright blue and bright, bright pink. She also wears remarkably long earrings, and I've never understood how she plays this with them. Like, they dangle from her ears, Yeah. and I don't see how they, like, she hasn't, like, knocked out a tooth. It's weird. Knocked out a tooth with her earrings? Yeah, like when she swings, okay, like they okay. kind of like swing across her face. Sure. Um, okay. But Wickmeyer, aside from her Grand Slam results and her occasional upsets, is also famous. How long was the ban? Six months? Was that actually enforced that much? I thought it was always sort of pending. I thought it was backdated. I'd have to look at her results. But yeah, she did get in. She and Melise at the same time mm-hmm. got in a sort of uh, dust up the Belgian anti-doping authorities or the Flemish or whatever the jurisdiction was there. It was some weird within Belgium, Belgium thing where they're going after their own players for like whereabouts stuff. Right after she made her rise, there were questions about whether or not she was being fastidious enough with mm-hmm. reporting her whereabouts. And, and and you're right, Ben, it was a suspended one-year ban. Okay, so she didn't actually miss any action. She didn't actually miss any action. Right, but it was just sort of a cloud hanging over her for a while, for Correct. sure. But I think with Wickmeyer... And that she's really most known for what makes her most unique among the top 40, I guess, now. It's just how unpleasant she can come off on court. More <laughs> yeah. than, really, more than anybody. I mean, you, you talk about Wickmeyer, you, you think of the sort of rudeness towards ball kids that she's notorious for. And that's, you know, might seem like a minor thing, but that really is the reputation she's developed uh, over a few years now. Yeah, she's, she's, uh, she's an off-putting player uh, yeah. when you watch her. And there's no real way around that i mean i think you know i think that maybe my statement before about her being hyper competitive was maybe code for that but i could tell i was just trying to crack yeah people yeah no 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 but you're you're dead right um she she has a very off-putting demeanor she just is just comes off as rude to anyone and everyone and just has way more intensity than she needs in order to play well. And, and I think that that's a big thing about a lot of the chokes that she has and because she's choked a lot of matches and, and matches where she's unable to kind of tap her best. It's a lot of it is just being so tense, not because she's nervous because she like wants it so bad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's, she's a bit of a, she's not an easy one to talk to. And this has been, I was going to say, it's, it can be on court and off with her. Yeah. And, and I've heard, we've heard from, you know, yeah, it's just not the easiest person to deal with for people at various 
levels of the game. So, Agreed. So that's yes, a bit of a downer, but yeah, she's we're a pr- not... she's a prickly one, but hey, you know they all they come in all shapes and sizes on they the do. WTA tour. So the, having the number having your number come up doesn't always mean we're going to say you know you're great glowing things about you. It's just you know this yeah. is what we what how these players are viewed, and I think she does, she's young though. That's the thing with Wickmeyer. she's young, and people realize I think she's uh, 23. Um, so even though she feels like she's been around a while, uh, she has time for, you know, an evolution, a maturation, a metamorphosis. She can turn into a butterfly or poor eyes, Courtney. A beautiful Belgian butterfly. I have that butterfly song stuck in my head now. Which butterfly song? Mariah Carey. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) Nick Cannon would like that too. Oh God. Um, not anyway, but let's move on to other topics, which would be Marty Fish. Yeah. We've we've talked offline a little bit about Marty Fish and how his 2013 has gone or not gone as it would be and just the growing concern. I mean Courtney, what do you what do you how do you talk a little bit about how everything has gone for Marty Fish for the last 15 months or so? Since, yeah. Essentially since he made the uh World Tour finals at the end of 2011 and you know finished in the top 8, was really had a career year and then since then it's been it's been rough. Yeah, it's always, you know, I actually find it quite difficult to kind of write about Marty. Me too. Simply because it seems stupid to talk about tennis with him right now, given his health concerns. You know, Fish, being people up to date, to the extent they don't know, was diagnosed with like a heart arrhythmia last year in Miami. April or May? April, Miami, April. March. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I know that he went down. I can't remember when the diagnosis happened but and the surgery, but he had, and had like some minor kind of surgery to kind of get it corrected. But uh, Marty's, you know, one thing you you do know about him is that he's he's kind of a sensitive guy. And I think that it was very difficult for him to get back on court and to really feel confident in his body and specifically his heart um, that that the panic attacks or or the short shortness of breath and things like that were not going to come back again. So, you know, he withdrew from his quarterfinal match. Quarterfinal or round of 16? Round of 16 against Round of 16 against Federer at the U.S. Open last year and uh, hasn't played a match since has pretty much been like withdrawing from tournaments and things like that, which, you know, I, I just feel what I meant when I said that I feel stupid writing about tennis with him is I'm just kind of like, dude, fine, that totally cool. Like, you know, like take as long as you need, like having like a being concerned about your heart is, is not, you know, why would anyone take any risks with that? His response, I suppose, to all of it just seems extremely human to me. And in that way, I don't know, I kind of uh, really feel for him right now and yep. kind of not have, have avoided writing about him, but just kind of feel like, you know, what's the point? Giving what's, him some you know? space. I mean, yeah, much. exactly. I exactly. mean, and there's been some talk that a lot of it is stress based for him and then, you know, situational, I guess, like being about to walk onto court versus Federer at the U.S. Open is a more stressful thing for him than other situations and it's been the sort of and even people who are close to him have made sort of odd remarks about this like justin gimelstab at the u.s open yeah. said something really just sort of strange about marty fish saying like you know he needs to toughen up essentially through this stuff and we don't know i mean obviously marty is, is like we said is a is a pretty sensitive guy can take things pretty personally a lot of times um and you understand that because everyone's you know human for sure and it's uh, a spotlight that he wasn't necessarily hardened by before he got into being the top American, had a lot more pressure on him very quickly when Roddick sort of quickly dropped and he quickly rose at the same time. Yeah, and it, it's been it's been interesting because there's been just some edginess to him even when he has been on court. It makes him mm-hmm. look just uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I remember last year at Hopman Cup when he had the dust up with uh, 
Dimitrov. It was just strange. And then at the uh, at the Australian Open, he got in another dust up with Alejandro Faya at medical timeouts <laughs> or something. It's just like he seemed to be trying to pick fights or something. It didn't. Yeah. It, it just looked really uneasy. And I don't know what exactly was causing that. If it was tennis related, stress in the media related. Um, but yeah, he does. He does seem to take things. He take things pretty hard. And it's been uh, tough seeing him constantly pulling out of this and seeming like he's not not ready for coming back yet because he seemed like when he was going about it when he said i'll skip australia but i'll come back in san jose that seemed like a pretty nice way to go about you know easing yourself back into trying testing the waters again but then he pulled out of san jose he's pulled out of delray another soft tournament pulled out of memphis another not very big tournament yeah so now he's still scheduled for indian wells as of now he also has that la tennis i mean exhibition. la tennis expo which actually is a really good lineup for that yeah yeah for, um, i mean they got Djokovic. that was that's, huge. that's that's massive so yeah. So they've done a good job with that. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's worrisome to see him keep pulling out. Because at a certain point with this kind of thing, where it's not like he's suddenly going to get better. There's right. no, like, it's not like he's healing. It's a, it's a mental thing, on some level, at least. Uh, you just got to hope that he, you know, or hope that he does what's best for him, even if that is, you know, never returning to the sport. But that can't be what he wants. I mean, he's always been a very uh, hungry guy. He's dedicated his life to this. And he seems equally frustrated with himself about having this kind of thing hold him back and that yeah. seems to be adding to his stress even more it's a cyclical vicious cycle thing i don't know i mean I, I feel a bit differently i mean i think that there i don't know if i'm in his situation and obviously neither he and i are not hardwired the exact same way but if i'm if i'm in his position i kind of think you know what i had i had it as good as i'm gonna get it I had I was i finished in the top eight i had a ridiculously great year i proved to myself that i can I can play. I mean, I can be in that elite level that I wasn't just a middling journeyman, that I was a top 10 player. And I proved that to myself. Now, do I believe that I can do I can replicate that because I'm not coming back unless I can because I've had the taste of it. Why would I want to be like a top 20 player? Like, yeah. that doesn't seem, you know what I mean? I, I don't I don't know if I totally buy that, though. I don't, I don't know that he feels like he's done enough because I feel like he felt like he was just getting started when he stopped. He was just hitting his, his stride. He was just recently in the top 10 when things started falling apart from him. So I don't know that I think that he would be able to convince himself in the next couple years, maybe later, later on in life. Um, but I don't think right now he could ever say, you know what? I did pretty good. I don't think he's there yet. Cause I mean, there are some holes in his resume. I mean, he hasn't made a, you know, slam semi. I don't know if he's won. He hasn't won a masters. He hasn't, he's come close a few times to both of those things, but there's, yeah, but there's, 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 I feel like he has to feel like there's stuff left for him to do in the sport. And yeah, he's still playing he... good ball from what people who players who are still practicing with him have said, I mean, I talked to Steve Johnson about him, who's been hitting with him a bunch in L.A. He says Marty's still playing great. It's just, you know, doesn't feel ready. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, he's, he's, he's not young. I mean, he's 31 years old. I'm, I just, I can, I, you know, having spoken to him a few times, like, you know, I don't know what your read on it is, but, but he strikes me as a tremendous realist. Like, he's not a guy to overinflate, or he's not a, he's not particularly a dude with a big ego. No, it's not. Um, you know, he, he kind of has known and accepted kind of his role within the tennis space and particularly within the American tennis space throughout his career. And, and I think that, I don't know, I mean, I think that if he's a realist and a pragmatist and he looks at it, I, it would not surprise me if he thought, you know what, that was, that was I'm okay with, with my career and it's not worth kind of the risk. Yeah, I, 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 I have a different read on him than that, I think. I think that he really, when he was going out, I mean, he beat Nadal at Cincinnati. I think we were both there in 2011. Mm -hmm. 
in the quarters there, and that was, you know, a big win over top four guy, but the week before that, he had made the finals in Montreal, and he really seemed to be on the verge of overachieving to a, to a really high height. I mean, people didn't ever expect this from him. I mean, he did spend the vast majority of the early stages of his career in the, you know, the 30 to 40 range. Or... But you're already, but you, but you just said the key word, which is overachieving. Right. If you but... think you're overachieving, then at some point, you also think, think you normalize. I thought he was overachieving, though. I don't feel like when you're overachieving, you really say, whoa, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. I mean, like, for example, like, not that they're the same person with her, but Mesquina, Anastasia Mesquina, who very, who managed to completely fluke her way to a French Open title um, after having no clay court success whatsoever in her career, you know, got up to number two during a weird period of the game where it's sort of an interregnum, I guess. Later on, when it was like 067, it was like, yeah, I'm very ready to get back to number two in the world. I, I know I belong there. It's like, no, you know, you really don't belong at number two in the world, <laughs> Anastasia Mesquina. That was weird. That shouldn't have happened. But I don't think players have, and I don't think they can ever think of themselves to be in order to be a successful pro athlete you can't say you know what i didn't really deserve that success i had no you got to think that you earned it and you got to think there's there can be more where it came from especially in the short run so unless you unless you think you don't i don't think that though i don't think that about him i don't know i disagree tell us in the comments whether you disagree with team ben or team whether you're on team ben or team courtney on this issue i'm curious genuinely yeah, do a poll we'll do a poll because i yeah i don't i don't know like i just think that he's I, so prediction know. time, do you think he'll come back? And if so, when? I think that if he comes back, it'll be not until the summer hardcourt season. I, I, I would think... actually put it, I would put it at like Queens Club. Yeah, I mean, I could see that coming back on grass. But I, yeah, but definitely you think that he's going to skip Indian Wells, Miami. I think, I mean, I think so. He, he's not out of that in EXO yet. And I have to feel like if he plays the EXO, it's hard to play the EXO and then pull out of the, uh, of the Indian Wells. So I don't know. It's tricky. It's just it's unfortunate to watch because I think people you know, respect a lot how he was able to make a move in his career and really sort of change how he's perceived. I mean, really, he he was number one American for about a year, and that's not yeah. something anybody ever expected of Marty. And he was playing good tennis. He was playing really good I actually really like liked set. watching Marty play yeah. when he was playing that well. Yeah, completely. He won a bunch of, ti- bunch of small titles, yep. doing big stuff, so... Yeah, we hope that he gets to end it more on his terms than this, is basically. Definitely agree with that. So... That's Marty Fish, number 33, joining Nina Vickmeyer. And uh, there you go. All right. Now is our closing rant corner segment episode. And for a little bit of a change, we're going to have ladies first this week. So, Courtney, please do hit us with what's on your mind. Okay. What's on my mind at the moment, because I spent much of today thinking that I was going a little crazy. And that might be a tip off to you, Ben, because I know that I was like just literally ranting about it to mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. Um, without you responding to my t- my uh, my G chat messages sometimes. But oh, um, oh, throw me under the bus there. Okay. The last two went unanswered, and that was me at my most pissed offedness. Is the WTA the new WTA site? I spent about like thirty minutes to an hour today, like literally thinking I was going nuts because I could not. Um, basically like rectify a a specific stat and that stat was very simple which was how many straight losses had victoria azarenka suffered to serena williams before today Mm -hmm. simple stat should be it should be easy go to if under the old website you would just go to head to head and you'd look it up and it would be it would show you whatever nine straight and but that wasn't the case and because for whatever reason the new wta site is still incredibly glitchy and while the glitches were understandable when the site debuted back in like December or January, 
you know, because it was a new site, they're still working out some kinks, and that's fine. But it has been almost, I mean, it has been over a month now. Yeah. A full slam has gone by. These are like back to back premier tournaments uh, that are going on right now in the Middle East. And I'm kind of stuck in this situation where I can't rely on the WTA website not for anything right now, particularly with respect to like player results um, and things. You know, like that just handcuffs you on such a major level in terms of being able to get something written fairly quickly and accurately and have faith in knowing that the numbers that you're citing are good. And for example, today with the, the, the Vika Serena stat, like the WTA, because I looked it up, if you look up the head to head, unless they fix it by the time this thing is posted, which would totally, they would totally do because it would make me look horrible, <laughs> um, is that if you look up the head to head between Victoria Zarenka and Serena Williams, it shows eight straight losses. Okay. Now, what it, if you look and if you look close, you're like, wait a second, these eight lo- straight losses don't include the U.S. Open loss in 2012, nor do they include the WTA Championships loss in t- at the end of 2012. Because if you're looking chronologically, which we would think you would do, you don't see them. A further closer look would show you that, wait a second, actually those results are in there. They're just out of order because the last result listed is the loss at the Olympics and somewhere embedded in those 2012 results, the WTA Championships and the U.S. Open. That is not helpful. But at least the results are there. But then if you look even closer, you notice that the t- because then you're like, wait, well, maybe these results are not in chronological order. Then if you go back to 2009, which is the last year that Azarenka beat Serena, you notice that for whatever reason, her Miami win is listed after her loss to Serena at Wimbledon that same year. Which means that if you look at the results in a glance, at a glance, if you look at the streak, it looks like eight straight because the Vika result is not listed in chronological order. Anyways, it's not okay <laughs> because when I get these stupid things wrong, people scream at me, whether it's on Twitter or via comments or via email and tell me that I'm a dumbass. And whereas like I'm doing the right thing, which is like not relying on AP, which reported, by the way, a 10 match wins lo- losing streak, which is incorrect because they counted the... Um, walkover, walk-over yeah. in brisbane so the wire report was wrong but you know and then you go into itf but then you can't really have much faith in itf i it's just a total clusterfuck it was so frustrating i lost about an hour of time because i couldn't freaking count to nine because i because like the tennis tv stream was saying nine straight wins i was counting eight straight wins atp said 10 straight so i was just really pissed off today <laughs> it's exo- it's it's tough and it's been it's been a lot of uh, very slow to correct or not corrected growing pains with the new site, so it's been exactly. it's been unfortunate. And the and the ATP site has had plenty of reliability for somewhere for a site that boasts a reliability index on it. It's surprisingly unreliable in terms of just you know just not crashing. Work. Yeah, yeah. I mean so. the WTA site is giving you wrong information. The ATP site is giving you no information. And while that all may be fine and good for people who, who I don't know, have like hours and hours to write their stories, it doesn't work for some of us who like literally have to churn something out in like 30 to 45 minutes. And yep. um, anyways, it's extremely frustrating and it just really annoys me simply because like I'm trying to do the right thing, which is not rely on secondhand information and going straight to the source to verify every single fact. And the source is wrong. And that is a problem. It's a problem indeed. You feel better That's now? That's you feel better now? I don't know if I feel better because I lost an hour of my day. And I, because I'm horrible at math. Like, I'm horrible at math and even counting. Like, when I count things, I invariably mess it up. Don't Count, ask. Counting's hard. Counting's hard. We're not it's math tough. people. I, I, and I can hear the silent 
Asian stereotypes that are like popping in all of y'all's heads, <laughs> and let it just be said that I'm insulted. But I can't do math, and you're one, I, I you're can't one of those sports Asians we keep hearing about. Exactly. I, you know, I was I was a writer. I wasn't a math geek. If I was a math geek, then I would have been a doctor. That's how my family works. But I wasn't. Yeah. So I, I will say though, you didn't give me credit on GChat for this whole episode, but I did hook you up with the back door to the WTA site. You did. You did. Ben showed me a way to get to the original WTA site, which is still up and is still updating. So to those of you who want to know what that backdoor update is, because I feel bad about keeping it to myself now that you've mentioned it, Ben, Mm -hmm. is basically Google the name of the player and WTA and activity, like just Google Azarenka WTA activity, and you'll get a set of Google results. And the one that you want to click on is the one that that has origin in the URL. Yeah. And that will redirect you to the original site. And so that was extremely helpful. And then, yeah, but basically, like, in terms of head-to-heads and things like that, I've been cross-referencing, like, three different sites against each other in order to make sure my information is accurate, which is pissing me off. It's tough. Not, shouldn't have to be done. Agreed. A, a person who, you know, what they say, a person who has one watch always knows what time it is. A person who has two is never sure. Mm-hmm. So there you go. I my My rant here is a little bit different i guess it's, it's also tennis related it has to do with a story that came out this week they got some coverage and there have been some whispers about before which is the ban that got announced sometime this week i'm not exactly sure what day of uh barbara zalavova stritseva mm-hmm. for six months uh sus- i guess suspended or you know backdated 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 so she'll come back in april actually people who are relatively hardcore wta fans will know it's a it's a very sort of feisty czech player who is very very dramatical on court all the time and i have a video i took of her at cincinnati you know slamming her racket around and then sitting pouting for two minutes while a ball kid stands there ignored while holding a towel out to her and it's, it's pretty funny but she's so an one, angry check she's she's angry she's angry there's a lot of anger in her um, but there was also apparently a diet drink in her or something, this acai yeah. berry thin drink, which um, contained some sort of stimulant or something that showed up as banned. And so she got six months and she pointed to this drink that she had bought and uh, they totally, and they said, we're, it's, we agree with you that, you know, that closed what has happened, but still we're going to ban you and put out this press release that you uh, did this. And, my thought on this, and this happened with Robert Kendrick too recently, where he took some sleep pill, sleeping pills or something that had something in them, and he got suspended for longer than that. I think he got suspended for like a year and a half, Kendrick, mm-hmm. actually. It's just, it's, I don't know. I, I, I'm not exactly sure what the solution is. It's not a solution-oriented rant. But I just feel like it's when people make these innocent mistakes, these sloppy mistakes or these sort of things, where they're not doing it for any sort of performance-enhancing thing whatsoever, and you, and the ITF believes them for whatever evidence they have, that they actually that Barbara actually did drink this drink and this is what caused this test and there was a causation there to to sort of throw their reputations under the bus forever with these releases about the doping stuff because a lot of the headlines that came out it said Zalovova should have suspended for doping they weren't they didn't really go into detail saying you know it was a weight loss drink that tripped it off I don't know it just seems it seems unfair and it seems like frying the little fish to a crisp for for no apparent gain other than you know to show that they're being vigilant or something and make examples of them. And it just struck me as uh, less than less than ideal. I understand that, you know, players should be more careful, but I don't know, when they when they believe the excuse, why why punish them? Have you seen the Acai Berry Thin website? I did. I did. There's a lot of bikinis. Why the hell was she even taking it? Because she wanted to lose weight, probably. So stupid. 
I'm sorry. She should be banned for stupidity. <laughs> that was the thing with Kendrick, too. Kendrick's, like, when people looked up the website for him, uh, it was, like, you know, looked fairly, you know, sketchy. But, I mean, if there's not a performance-enhancing intent, why are you getting banned for, essentially, a performance-enhancing violation? Because you have to, because doesn't, like, the doping, like, board or, like, whatever, WADA have to, like, take, like, they, they basically have to rule on intent, which is a, which is a really, really dicey, you know, I mean, technically, she was taking it to enhance her performance because she was trying to lose weight. I don't know. I mean, maybe she was just trying to, you know, impress, you know, Mr. Stritzoff. <laughs> and these are the discussions that the ITF or the, that WAD is like, yeah, we don't really want to even get into this. Strict liability. <laughs> like, if it's in your blood, tough shit. <laughs> no, I know. That's the thing. And I understand why they make that rule and why they punish these people for these things. But... Just, You're just saying it just seems harsh. It just seems harsh. And there's just a disconnect for me when I read these releases. It says she's been banned. We know it was an accident, but we're still punishing her. They can probably word it differently. I guess. It's just like they're being mm-hmm. held. And that's one of the things I think people don't appreciate sometimes with the players is how vigilant they are about most of them, clearly. Because, I mean, this doesn't happen frequently, this kind of thing. Most of them are incredibly, you know, try to make sure they do all the nutritional things. These are obviously we're talking about the ones who or something nobody's trying to cheat, obviously. For, for devil's advocate or naive advocate, people really do make sure that they're taking all the right nutritional supplements and that nothing they have is, you know, anything bad. And they read the ingredients labels all the way through and cross them against stuff and look at approved lists and disapproved lists and stuff. Because players all are all putting all sorts of things in their body all the time to try to get better in their athletes and they want to do that. Mm-hmm. Golbus different than others, but, you know. <laughs> so be it and uh yeah so i mean just to make a mistake and to be i don't know like i'm saying i'm not saying they should do anything different necessarily i'm just saying there was a disconnect for me when i read that i think uh, that you're uh, i I would agree with you in terms of like the result the the release should have been written better because i think like i know that like for myself when i wrote when i wrote up the story i was i kind of like highlighted like even though the itf agreed that you know it wasn't intentional and it was accidental blah blah you know, water rules state that, you know, it's the onus is on the player to, to, to not ingest anything, yeah. you know, and that, you know. I wish, I wish I had put it better so that the yeah, wire story didn't no say Barbara Salvova should have a ban for doping. Which oh, is what it the, did sto- say. the wire story. The headline, the headless. I mean, you know. <laughs> oh, the headline was definitely going to say it regardless. Yeah, so, I mean, there's, I mean? Not, there's not a lot of room for clarity when her name takes up that many characters, I guess. <laughs> That's also true. So. <laughs> That's surprised that it just wasn't Barbara Zalova Stritzova doping. <laughs> right. Lena could have had a much longer explanation in there, but Zalova Stritzova was just like, nah, no. Yeah, fair. So, so that's my rant. Not, not entirely, you know, airtight, but that's what I was I thinking. This week. So that will do it for us for episode 27. We're really churning out these numbers here. We're at like, you, you know, nearly 30. It's pretty impressive. We almost have as many episodes as we have days in September. February. Well, you know, Ben, 30 is the new 21. So, so I've heard. So Serena tells me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with that, we'll, uh, we'll put a cork in this one. Have a good one, folks. Enjoy some, uh, Tegan and Sarah outro, Courtney. I know you like that. Oh, speaking to my heart, the one time I get an actually like lovable outro. Do it. Sometimes it feels like they want to-